Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and making things and sometimes making historical things. Uh, and we like to start by talking about what we've been making and or baking recently. So what have you been up to? I may have made another set of dice. Another one? Well, you know, there were a couple of flaws in the first set and I needed to know if it was me or the mould. <laughs> so obviously I had to make another full set of dice. Yeah, of course. Okay, so the first one you made was this sparkly, like, green green and copper one, right? Mm-hmm. Those were so cool. These ones are pink with blue sparkles and white le- um, not letters, numbers. <laughs> Chance <laughs> You know, maths letters. <laughs> um, that sounds cool. Unfortunately, I have come to the conclusion that the issue is largely with me. Well, like, it's only your second pair of dice, right? Pair? Set? It is. Um... But I think the way to solve the issue is to get more expensive resin or a piece of equipment that costs about 200 quid. Oh, <laughs> okay. Are they big flaws or are they ones that you can live with? Um, it's basically that the numbers aren't molding entirely correctly. Oh. Um, because whatever i try i still get some bubbles in the in the acrylic mm-hmm. well they still look like functional dice like they still work they're just not the prettiest mm-hmm. but I, i've been having fun with fine grain sandpaper oh <laughs> well because you gotta sand them mm-hmm. and when you get to like 1500 sandpaper units i don't know what the numbers actually mean but when it's bigger it's finer. <laughs> but once you get to 1500 sandpaper units it feels fuzzy rather okay. than like sandpaper it feels kind of velvety Ooh. and it's really weird that it is sanding something <laughs> and the the set of sheets i got go up to 2000 sandpaper oh wow units. You've got to sand something with that just to see how it does. Well, I've, I've been using it to sand the dice because you go through all the different numbers. Oh, okay. To make it all smooth and nice. Nice. But sounds... it is quite fun just to touch. Mm. I usually well, hate the feel of sandpaper, but that sounds quite nice. It does not feel like sandpaper. It's weird. What what have you been up to? Um, so this week I've been able to get stuck into a dressmaking project for the first time in a couple of years, actually, which is nice. Exciting. Um, I'm making, for anyone that's wondering, Vogue 8, 5, hold on. Uh, yeah, Vogue 8, 5, 7, 7, um, which is a shirt dress with pockets. And I finished the skirt and made the pockets. And it was very exciting because I made pockets for the first time. So (laughs) 
Um, that has been fun. Um, not complete yet. Um, and then today I received something that I bought a few weeks ago, which is a Turkish spindle. So that's a spindle where instead of uh, like the round um, whirl, it has two crossbars, one that goes inside the other, and then you put the shafts through them uh, so that when you finish, so you wind your yarn that you're spinning into basically a ball around the crossbars. And then when you're finished, you can just remove all the pieces and you have this little ball of yarn that's just like ready. Okay, so that's very cool. It, it's very cool, yeah. So you can I'm either like... Taking a picture of that fly from it or yeah I, I will be yeah I will be putting a picture of that up because it's great so because I had to and oh and I didn't mention like the most extra part of it which is that it's made of bog oak that is pretty extra <laughs> which I just I decided to get myself like a nice spindle and there's this guy on the Isle of Wight that makes them um out of like musical instrument woods um, sure so and and they had bog oak so i was like okay well i want to have the ancient tree spindle obviously <laughs> um and it has like little weights in the crossbars so that it spins really nicely and yeah it's great it's also tiny because it's like a, a lace weight spindle um which is, is your shawl great. uh sorry is this for your shawl uh, no, this is, oh yeah, I'm still knitting on that. <laughs> this is the beginning of the uh, extra jumper that I want to make, or Ishal, I think, which is a, I'm, I'm going to make a jumper and it's a colorwork jumper with like the moon phases on it. I'm very excited. So I've started spinning the uh, wool that I dyed with onion skin and dandelion today. Um, and yeah, I love it. It's just, I really like this spindle. Um, it's just, just feels nice. Feels very delicate and fun. Um, so yeah, that is something I'm enjoying very much. It's good. I'm probably not going to talk a huge amount about this project, um, like ongoing on the podcast because it's just going to take me ages to spin all of the wool because. Um, I'm also going to be indigo dyeing some wool, um, some of the same wool, um, to be the main colour of the jumper. Um, and then I'll have to spin that. So all in all, I'm going to need to spin about 400 grams in a four ply or sock weight. Um, so that's going to take me a while and it's going to be quite boring, just basically the same thing happening. So yeah, more on this probably in several months <laughs> you say that like i haven't been talking about the same projects on here for months <laughs> well you know it's, people come here for the continuity right <laughs> <laughs> it's like a really slow knit along yeah it's you know slow tv this is slow podcasting slow radio <laughs> are you relaxed <laughs> We should so, just have a segment in the middle that's just the sound of knitting needles. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> Can we have an ASMR segment? <laughs> <laughs> we could do like based on whatever the topic is. So, well, that that would certainly be an interesting ASMR segment for this episode because I want to talk about goats. Finally. <laughs> Um, for those who are unaware, my username on pretty much any piece of social media is the words invisible goats. I like goats very much. Liz did their dissertation on goats. I did. Um, so I've been saving this for when I felt like I needed it. And between having COVID a few weeks ago and the fact they've been resurfacing right outside of our house this week and making the whole house vibrate, I need to talk about something I care deeply about. And this is the perfect vehicle for it, and I cannot wait to learn about goats and their history and many uses. So, the domestic goat. (laughs) I can tell how much you're enjoying this already. (laughs) Is it because the accent's coming out? (laughs) tell me about the domestic goat please um so it's one of the first animals to be domesticated wow um about eight thousand bc wow so we're talking proper old didn't know goats were so old they are it's goats and sheep are pretty much the earliest okay apart from like dogs but um you know what i mean they're like Within within that little bundle of agriculture is starting. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were domesticated in um, the Levant, which is that sort of fertile crescent area. Mm-hmm. Do we know what their like wild progenitor was? Yes, um, it's called Capra. A Gragas, which Ooh. is a, a wild goat, which does still exist. Oh, cool. And its range is approximately from Turkey to Turkmenistan, which is just very pleasing to me. <laughs> um, yeah, there was... There's multiple domestication events for goats... The main one is is this one in the Levant, but there is one about 500 BC okay. in Turkey, Ooh. which doesn't seem to have crossbred much with the sort of original line, which is quite interesting. Um, and you will see, like, Turkish goats do look... Like, they still look like goats, but they look more wild. Oh, like, like they, they resemble the wild ancestor more. Oh, I the see. Okay. Goats, especially. So they're just a completely different kind of goat than other goats. Like they are, they are just visually very different to sort of your standard. Because what I think what most people at least in Britain, think of, is the boar goat, which is your classic, you know, it's got the 
big floppy ears and it's got that little yeah. face. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. These goat breeds with Hazel for reference. Um, <laughs> I will be tweeting some of my favorite goat breeds. <laughs> but goats are really good because they're a, they're a multi-use animal. Um, you can use them for milk, meat, fiber, manure, horns, and um, actually their innards as well. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know if you've heard the phrase cat gut. Yes. Does that not come from a cat? Uh, it largely comes from sheep and goats. Oh. What's it called cat gut for? That I don't actually know. Hmm. Oh yeah, cashmere comes from goats, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I always forget that. I feel like it should be like a really fancy sheep or something. Or a rabbit, but that's Angora. Well, <laughs> sheep and goats are incredibly similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so archaeologically, it is virtually impossible to differentiate sheep and goat remains. Because mm-hmm. the skeletons are just so incredibly similar to the point that when you have like official guidance for telling them apart, you get th- phrases like slightly more gracile, which is very up to interpretation and depends on what your reference samples are. Okay. Do you want to tell us how you did it? Oh yeah, this this is what my dissertation was on. Um, so there's a method called zooms, which is zoo archaeology by mass spectrometry which is the most reliable way to tell sheep and goat remains apart. And you can do it on parts that aren't the bones. Like, you can do it on parchment. It's ridiculous. Where you extract the collagen, and then you break that down with enzymes. I won't go into too much detail. (laughs) And then you put it in a mass spec, which is basically a machine that shoots lasers at things to analyze them. Mm -hmm. And then based on the different weights of the collagen, you determine whether it's a sheep or a goat. Shooting lasers at bones. Shooting lasers at bones. Specifically bones that have been put in acid first. So cool. Oh, and what's the bone called when when it's just the collagen? Uh, it's just collagen at that point. Oh, okay. Oh, am what I confusing can... things? What's jelly well... bone then? <laughs> jelly bone is not an official name for it. Oh, but it's it's a cool name. It is. And oh, I mean, collagen I... is how you would traditionally make jelly. <laughs> like you'd boil up the bones in the collagen to come out. The acid just kind of speeds up the process. Mm-hmm. Um, I genuinely thought just from like the frequency that you were using the term jelly bone, I just thought it was an archaeological like thing. It's, no, it's just people know what you mean when you say it. Because <laughs> bone has is basically collagen and rock. 
So you take the rock bit away and you just have collagen just in the shape of the bone. And it's called jelly bone. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Yes. Um, So there's over 300 breeds of goat now uh, because they're all, you know, people specialize different breeds for different purposes, for different climates. The boar goat that I mentioned was bred in South Africa for its meat. Which is why sometimes you'll see a boar go- goat and it looks really muscly. Like this is a hench goat. Wow. <laughs> they're, they're intimidating. <laughs> this is making me a little bit nervous of goats. You should not be nervous of goats. Because the thing about them is... Research from the Queen Mary University in London showed that they will look to humans for help when they have a problem. And research from the Royal Society shows that they have a dog-like level of understanding of human emotion and they know when you're happy or sad and will react accordingly. So don't be scared of them, even with their creepy little pupils. (laughs) Um, So yeah, most of the uses for goats are fairly self-explanatory. You know, they, they have horns that you can use for horn. They poop, and you can use that for fuel. Um... The meat, interestingly, in some languages is referred to in the same way as mutton. And you get a lot of, especially older recipes um, from the Middle East and the Caribbean will kind of use mutton and goat interchangeably. Okay. It's milk where things get interesting. (laughs) It always is. I choose not to delve further into that statement. <laughs> I don't know why I remember that. Um, but yeah, so from the 16th to the 19th century, we have documentary evidence of goats being used as wet nurses. Huh? wait do you mean like babies being given goat's milk to to drink or do you mean like actually like being suckled by a goat both oh okay um So, while not ideal, obviously, um, it was a sort of fairly accepted replacement for the milk of a baby's mother. Okay. If for whatever reason, you know, either she wasn't producing milk or she died because history is terrible um 
You could either soak a cloth in the milk and kind of give it to the kid to suck on, or if you had a goat, you could just directly latch them on. Hey, not sure how I feel about that. Um, the physician to Louis the Fifteenth. Um, so we're talking mid eighteenth century. Said that he knew quote. Some peasants who have no other nurses but use, and these peasants were as strong and vigorous as others. So again, it's okay. that kind of sheep goat interchangeable. Mm. Um, but it it does seem to have been mostly goats. Um, there was actually a German book published in eighteen sixteen called "The Goat as the Best and Most Agreeable Wet Nurse." That makes me imagine just like a cheerful sort of jolly plump goat in a, a bonnet or something <laughs> being employed <laughs> as, a, as a wet nurse to children of quality. Yeah, it does. It does remind me of Nana from Peter Pan. <laughs> yeah. Um, but apparently in the 18th century, there were genuine fears of syphilis from wet nurses. Oh, can you get syphilis from milk? I suppose it is a bodily fluid, so... Um, if you have a syphilitic sore on your breast, which you might do if it's untreated, you can uh. pass it on. I see, okay. Um, and yeah, there was there was a lot of uh, stigma around wet nurses as people, mm -hmm. even though they were still used, obviously, by most most people with money. Like anyone point. who could afford to. Because there was this general impression of wet nurses as this woman has, has, a, has had a child but cannot support herself, which either means she's from the very lowest echelons of society or the child was born out of wedlock and there isn't a husband to support, support mm. it. So she is selling her breast milk, essentially. Okay. So that come, goes hand in hand with, well, of course, she's riddled with disease. Ah, so instead we will feed our child from a goat. <laughs> That is quite funny, I have to say. <laughs> Which actually isn't a great idea. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't think so. I mean, I go. I know goat's milk is supposed to be healthy, but like, if you drink it straight from the goat, well, uh, feeding a child just goat milk, um, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics in twenty ten. Um, can cause electrolyte problems and uh -huh. um, anemia. Oh, okay. Um, you can also contract a disease by drinking unpasteurized goat's milk called a caprine brucellosis. Mm -hmm. Um, which is causes a, a really bad fever which has a 2% fatality rate when untreated, which 
honestly probably wouldn't have been noticed in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Considering everything else that could have killed them. Yeah, the the child mortality rate being fairly high anyway. Yeah, but it's it's not the best idea. No, you don't want to compound things. Um, but obviously they are still used for milk now to make cheeses. Mm-hmm. Um, constitutes about 2% of the milk produced commercially in the world is goat's milk. Oh, that's quite a lot, actually. Yeah, it's especially popular in um, places like northern India, where it's very, very mountainous. Mm-hmm. So it's just easier to keep goats than something like cows if you want dairy. Yeah, that makes sense. And obviously the other big use for goats now is um, Kashmir and Angora. Mm. Which are much more different to each other, that's a bad sentence, um, than I thought they were actually. Oh, okay. okay. I don't know much about this. So Kashmir is fairly wool-like. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is that whole sheep and goats are very, very similar thing. But the the name etymology is interesting because we have Pashmina is basically a scarf made from Kashmir. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's actually the Persian word for Kashmir is Pashmina. Right. Whereas our... The English word for it, Kashmir, comes from a place in India called Kashmir, where they made pashminas, which were then exported throughout the British Empire. Ah, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've read about um, the, um, the making of pashminas in the... Um, the northern, like, Indian subcontinent. Yeah, the main areas are uh, Kashmir and Ladakh, I believe. Which is um, sort of right on the India-Pakistan-China border. Mm-hmm. It's a very mountainous, very good for goats. Uh, whereas Angora is more of a, a hair like you would expect to get on a goat. Okay. Which has a very long staple length and can be sheared twice a year. Oh, wow. But a big thing about it is they don't have the coarser sort of outer hairs that you get on a lot of furred animals. Mm-hmm. So it's easier to process than a lot of animal hair, and then that's how you get mohair. Ah. Which, personally, I really enjoy working with mohair. Yeah, I know it gets a bad reputation for being itchy, but I think that's kind of a hangover from, like, 80s jumpers um, that were sort of brushed mohair, which... Yeah, it can be very fuzzy and nice, but can be itchy. Whereas mohair is actually a really strong uh, material. 
It is, like I said, the stepper length can be up to four inches. Hmm. So that's going to get you an, a nice strong fibre. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of it being used as a replacement for nylon in sock yarns. That makes a lot of sense. I like the sound of mohair socks. I might have to make some at some point. Go for it. Sounds cosy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, other, other uses of goat. Um, apparently cat goat, so for people who don't know, it's most often used for the strings of things like violins. But you also get it in expensive tennis rackets. Oh. Uh, used as internal stitches in some countries. Oh, like medically? Mm-hmm. Wow. Not generally in the West, but because it's che- it's cheaper to make mm-hmm. than more modern stitches, it, it is sometimes okay. used. Yeah, I mean, um, if it works, yeah. It's also apparently the traditional thing to use to hang grandfather clock weights. That's very specific. It is, and I love <laughs> that. <laughs> Um, and since the 80s, the United States military has used them for training medical doctors. Ow. Um, so because their physiology in some places is very similar to humans, as a lot of mammals is. Okay. Um... Content warning, animal cruelty. Um, they use them for practicing treating battlefield injuries. Right. They used to use dogs for it, but that was phased out because people don't like the idea of dogs being used for this kind of thing. Mm. Um, so in the 80s, they switched over to goats. I see. Um, apparently, they, they do use... Um, mannequins and things like that as well Mm -hmm. but people generally feel that you need that experience of it being on a living thing yeah and frankly I would rather that they practiced on a goat than sort of came out to me having been blown up by a mine or something and we're just like okay this is my first time on a meet yeah um that isn't the only use they're being put to in the US though okay um so there's a plant called uh, kudzu which is incredibly invasive in parts of the southern US to the point that it will just take over entire buildings very quickly. So they bring in goats to eat it. Right. Are they particularly... Like, will they just eat this plant? Or do they eat everything else as well? Well, this is... Kudzu will basically take over 
an entire area, it will just be a blanket of this one plant. Okay, I see. To the point that you basically need to just get rid of it all and start again. Oh. Oh, that's that's very helpful of them. It is. Because, I mean, goats will eat most things because they're, they're browsers, which is basically mm-hmm. the animal version of the phrase, I'll try anything once. <laughs> they don't really have a specialised diet. They more just kind of go for whatever's about. I had that in my perception of goats. I think it did. It seems a very goat-type thing. They look like they would eat anything. Um, Which is another reason why they're good for mountainous areas, because they'll just eat whatever they can get. Mm -hmm. Um, Interestingly, they have... They can move the sides of their top lip independently, which is something they share with sheep and horses. Wow. Which is why they can eat things like gorse, because they can manoeuvre their lips around the spiky parts to just get to the tasty parts. Oh, that's amazing. Um, I, I do have a, a couple of other strange goat anatomy facts to finish off with, if you like. Oh, they are, like... There are a lot of things about goats that kind of freak me out. <laughs> and I think that is one of them, although it is cool. So hit me with some more weird goat facts. Um, so most hooved animals, like the standard for a hoofed animal is it walks on its toes. Yeah. Goats are basically... On point, on the very tips, like a ballet dancer. Oh, right. (laughs) Which is why they're so good at climbing, including sheer cliffs and trees. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen pictures of goats just halfway up a sheer cliff. Like, how did you get there? Sorry, did you say trees as well? There, There are places where goats... Are grazed up trees as standard. Um, in parts of the Middle East, it's not uncommon to just come across a tree full of goats. Well, there's food up there, and they're on their tippy toes, so they're gonna go and get it. Oh, the goat harvest is is very very fruitful this year. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, they also have square pupils. Yes. Which very freaky. Freak me out. Mm-hmm. Um, but they apparently help with uh, panoramic vision. They uh. have a, a broader like width of vision than humans with our pathetic circular pupils have. <laughs> and it also helps not let in too much light from above. Right. Is uh, is the the freaky people thing why they were associated with the devil? 
in Christian like mythology? Um, from what I can tell, it seems to be a combination of um, things like uh, satyrs and descriptions of the devil having cloven hooves. Right. Um, and also they're associated in the Middle Ages with um, promiscuity. Okay. Um, including the concept that they will whisper lewd things in the ears of of saints. <laughs> what, with their very movable lips. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it lewder, I'm sure. <laughs> um... And yeah, you you also get an association with figures like uh, Krampus. Yep. And uh, Nutty Puki, who's um, which is a sort of Finnish Krampus-like character. Oh. And um, these are pre-Christian. Um, folkloric figures so there's a theory that there's kind of a conflation okay um but the weirdest thing about goat's eyes is that (laughs) so the pupils aren't square square they're more kind of a long a wide rectangle and those pupils will stay parallel with the ground regardless of the goat's head position Uh oh Which is the thing that freaks me out the most about them. Uh, that's weird. So it's always going to be preventing too much light getting in from above, even if the goat is looking up. Wow. The pupil is going to stay in that same position. <laughs> what? I mean, that sounds very useful for them, but it's also... It is, but also I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this association of goats and lewdness may be a part of, um, this association of goats with, um, lewdness, according to, um, a American doctor called Samuel X. Radbill, may be what led to them being used less as an alternative to breast milk um because there was a a theory <laughs> that um suckling infants would take on the characteristics of whoever was breastfeeding them whether that was you know picking up characteristics from their mother or from different animals okay so you would never give your baby pig's milk <laughs> because you know th- you don't want them to be like a pig. Mm. I mean, I probably wouldn't anyway, to be fair. Um, but you also end, end up with a preference for donkey over goat. Because donkeys, you know, they're hard workers, they're patient. Versus goats and their libidos. <laughs> 
So if if you want your child, if you want your child to be a, a good contributing member of society, you give them donkey milk. Noted. Parenting tips from <laughs> Bread and Thread podcast. <laughs> Please do not give your children the milk of random farm animals. <laughs> At least, at least not, you know, straight from the source. Pasteurization <laughs> is important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's goats. Mm, that's Still one so of my favorite is. animals. Still freak me out. <laughs> Thank you. I learned a lot of things. And <laughs> goats are not as scary as I thought, although they are a bit weird. They are, but for different reasons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do kind of like the idea of like having having a couple goats or something though. Like they're quite they're quite domestic feeling. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what that means, but if I feel like I agree. It's just like the idea of like, you know, a little, little cottage with like some chickens and, and a goat outside and a little garden. One of my favourite books when I was a kid was Heidi, so. That does make a lot of sense for what I know about you. <laughs> I, can, I can see you up in the Alps. Frolicking. Yeah. You are a frolicker. I, guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> so what is our local ladder this week? Right. Now, uh, it's a bit of a departure from goats, but in honour of possibly the best fish and chips I've ever had in my life a few days ago, I'm going to talk about mushy peas. I do love a mushy pea. Me too. I used to not like them, but I have to say I've been converted in recent years. They're great. They are great. So for anyone who has not come across mushy peas, they are, I mean, it's pretty difficult to describe, <laughs> honestly. They're like peas. <laughs> Because any time they're not, they're beans, aren't they? Um, they are actually peas. Um, yeah, anytime I try to describe them, it, it kind of sounds gross, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so mushy peas, uh, basically what it says, it's it's like a really thick pea soup almost. Like like a consistency of a really thick soup slash sauce made of peas cooked until they're kind of mushy like they're quite mushy but some of the peas are still like pea shaped and you eat them with fish and chips you're right it sounds disgusting <laughs> they're really good i promise <laughs> <laughs> So um but it is quite a quite a UK food. Um I think. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and they're eaten pretty widely, I think. Uh, although, according to a YouGov survey from 2014, 37% of people who have fish and chips have mushy peas with them. So they're kind of not, they're not universally liked, but that goes up to 66% in Manchester. Yes. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> And they are known occasionally as Manchester caviar. You know what? It's probably meant to be insulting, but I'll take it. <laughs> I feel like, because I've heard of like some restaurants just like full on putting that on the board. So I feel like it's been reclaimed. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, mushy peas are popular across uh, the British Isles, but... Um, I would say probably more popular in the north. I don't know that many people who eat them down here, um, although I do. Yeah, uh, I have been informed by friends from the south that there are chippies that just don't offer it. Oh. Which feels sinful. Yeah, that sucks. That's just not offering a full range of accompaniments. you got to have something wet. Yeah. <laughs> You gotta eat you, you dip your chips in them. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um I I usually get them because I feel like it makes it a bit healthier. Although <laughs> it probably doesn't. I although apparently they are quite good for like, like they are quite healthy, apparently. Although I feel like it's probably healthier if you have like homemade ones than <laughs> like the the canned ones but i mean it is also with a big plate of deep fried stuff yeah um and a lot of places put green food coloring in it to like some some of them come out and it's like radioactive green um <laughs> uh, which i think they do to try and make it more appetizing because otherwise like if you if you essentially overcook peas they don't they're not bright green anymore. Um. <laughs> Some of the tastiest mushy peas I've had have been basically brown. Yeah. So they're made from uh, marrow fat peas, which are like a large, very starchy variety of pea. So that's why it has to be this particular pea, because that's what will create the mushiness. Like if you use a different kind of pea, it won't come out right. They'll just be overcooked peas. <laughs> um, <laughs> but ideally, you want them to go just mushy enough for it to be a thick sauce, but to still have like identifiable peas in there. Disgusting! <laughs> um, this sounds so good. They're so good. Like it's it's just so comforting. I can't describe. Oh, please give give them a chance. Give the peas a chance. Give peas a chance. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this pea is actually harvested um, when it starts to dry on the plant. So in order to make the mushy peas, they have to be soaked overnight in order to rehydrate the pea before they can be cooked. Um, now, 
the term mushy peas seems to come from around the 1970s. Like that's when chip shops started serving mushy peas as a thing. But the concept of mushy peas, I'm convinced, is much, much older. Um, it feels wrong for it not to be. Yes. Um, because we know that peas and beans were, were like a big part of people's diet mm-hmm. in the British Isles, pretty much um, going back a long, long time. So according to Clarissa Dixon Wright's The History of English Food, um, they were a massive part of the average, like rural medieval diet. Um, so like the saying peas pottage in the pot, but peas pottage hot, peas pottage cold, peas pottage in the pot nine days old. Um, <laughs> tells you like how much people were eating because these were crops that would give you a lot of protein. Um, they were quite healthy, but they were also easily stored so you could dry the peas store them and then reheat them or uh, re-soak them when you needed them um and, and that would help keep you going through the winter as well so they're such a, a massive part of the national diet um and the method of cooking mushy peas is so similar that like it just it makes so much sense that it would be an evolution or, or like a remnant, I guess, of that part of our diets. Yeah. Especially like perhaps in, in the northern regions um, as well, where sort of traditions can tend to, to hang on a bit longer. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it, it does make sense with fish and chips being such a working class thing. mm that they just kind of end up combined. Yeah, like, it makes sense that you would have, like, you've got a bit of your pea dish left, so you reheat it to have with your fish and chips. And then it just becomes a thing. Mm. Um, Yeah. So there is an International Mushy Pea Day, you'll be pleased to know. When is it and can we celebrate? 9th of November and absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's a good time of year for mushy peas as well. Yes. When winter's just closing in a little bit. You need the stodge. Mm. <laughs> oh, hold on. Apparently now it's 8th of November. Wait, why did it move? I don't know. Um... You won't be surprised to know it started in a pub. Of course it did. (laughs) But so when I first read about it, um, it was the 9th of November, but I've just looked up the International Mushy Pea Day website to check. um, And it is now 8th of November. (laughs) Uh, Giving the mushy pea the limelight for the day. An opportunity (laughs) to spoil pea fans or to convert the not so sure. I will link to the International Mushy Pea Day website when this episode goes up. So there you go. A a brief, oh, oh, they've got a page called Recipes, except it's spelled (laughs) P-E-A-S. 
Mushy pea risotto. <laughs> okay, that sounds choice though. It does. Oh, peas on toast. <gasps> That's genius. I never considered that. Um, should we wrap up the podcast before we just spend another hour gushing about mushy peas? Uh, yeah, yeah, let's. Um, I hope you all enjoyed that. <laughs> you can look at it at your leisure. Um, if, if you want to give us some money for mushy peas, <laughs> we have a Patreon, uh, Bread and Thread, where you can get access to a Discord server where we'd like to talk about things we've been cooking and making and just chat about history stuff in general. Um, oh. And there's also monthly Patreon exclusive recipes. We also have a Twitter at Bread and Thread where you can find teasers for upcoming episodes, uh, links and pictures of things we talk about on the podcast uh, when the episodes come out uh, and also just like retweets of things that we think are relevant. Um, we're also on Tumblr which has the same content as the Twitter. And you can email us if you have an episode suggestion or if you just want to say hi at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. And we have a YouTube, also Bread and Thread, where we have uh, YouTube versions of our episodes, just the audio for people who prefer that. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. 